As I told you this morning, if you were with us, we are going to introduce this final letter in the series of seven letters to these churches in Asia Minor as they were given by Christ through the Apostle John, who was exiled, as you know, on the island of Patmos, and then each messenger was to carry these letters to their respective churches because they were a part of the church. And so take your Bibles and let's look at Revelation chapter 3. We are at the end of this series of letters, and so this is the last messenger that is making his way into the Lycus Valley and to the church of Laodicea. This, of course, is a very, very difficult letter for the church to read. I told you that I I would subtitle this message, Would Christ Be Attracted to Your Church?, And in these series of letters, I have said, this is God's people at Sardis. This this is God's people who assemble at Philadelphia. And so it is with this letter. This is God's people in Laodicea. The byline of each letter told the story of whether or not Christ affirmed what they were doing or whether he was calling them to repentance. This is, of course, the last letter in the seven, and this is a call to repent And so I've said, this is God's people in Laodicea, and this is the church that made Jesus gag. How tragic. This church had become the kind of church, not only that Jesus would not be attracted to, but the language here is quite graphic as to his response, even though he gives a gracious call yet again to repent. Follow along as we read from verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What makes the Lord Jesus Christ gag at a particular assembly that names him is essentially that they have come to the place where they say, I do not need anything outside of what I myself provide. 
They had gotten to the place in this church where they said, I have need of nothing. They had gotten to the place where they had begun to believe the opposite of the reality. They called evil good and good evil. They said they were rich. They're actually poor. They said they are wealthy. And and essentially what they meant was spiritually wealthy. The city itself was indeed wealthy. And they had money, but that wasn't the issue. They essentially were making the claim that they were fine spiritually. Everything was okay. In fact, not only was it not just okay, it was that they were rich and spiritually wealthy and they do not need what God says they need. Using metaphors here, Jesus, through this messenger giving this letter, says to them, it's quite the opposite. You are wretched. Your spiritual condition is that you're bankrupt. You are miserable. You are poor and blind and naked. You have not what you think you have. You cannot see what you think you can see. And you are not sheltered the way you think you are sheltered. And so I'm advising you to come back to me. Notice the emphasis in verse 18. Buy from me. Get white garments from me so that everything will be covered. Get eye salve from me. Your eyes are not opened, though you think they are. You are not on solid, spiritual, wealthy ground. You have no supply as you think you do. What a sad condition for a church to get to, where they're not merely dead, though they have a name that they're alive. There might be a reputation in the community, as we saw in another church, where they were alive, but they're in fact dead. But this is quite different. This isn't really about the reputation to the outside world. This isn't merely about externals when internally there's all kinds of turmoil. No. In Laodicea, the assembly believed that they were spiritually on solid ground. They took the high moral road in terms of their own self-assessment. They believed they were okay. The parallels to today sometimes are grievous when you think about it. There is... um, There has become this sort of assumption that if we can figure out how to brand ourselves to the the community around us, then then as a, a brand, we could attract the community around us, and as consumers, the community will choose a brand that they like, and so that's how you sort of get people into the church. We've been all about this idea that we we make ourselves attractive to the culture around us. What we're missing is exactly what Laodicea was missing. The only thing that matters is whether Christ is attracted to your ministry. The only thing that matters is what is at the central core of your philosophy of ministry, your doctrine, and your personal practice of what Jesus says. That's all that matters. Have you Have you gone to him for your supply? Have you gone to him for your spiritual wealth? Have you gone to him for your covering? Have you gone to him for the eyes to see? Laodicea is no different than so many churches today. They they become self-sufficient to the point where God sees the real spiritual condition. They are neither hot nor cold. They, They have no sense in which there's a conviction at all. They sit around in self-sufficiency without the conviction necessary to honor him and take a stand. The reason this is so serious to Christ is because it would be much better, he says, if you were either one or the other. 
if you were cold and then people could tell that you were cold, then at least we could point the finger and say, hey, stay away from them because they are of this condition. Or if you were hot, then at least the world could make a decision about the message that you speak. What is most dangerous about this is the the presumption of neutrality and internally a self-sufficient, a self-sufficient perspective about one's own spiritual life. And yet no conviction. It's subtle. This is a church that had become self-sufficient to the point where they, they would speak neither. They weren't extreme on anything. They didn't have any conviction. They wouldn't take a stand on anything, nor, nor would they. Uh, I mean, it was neutrality. It was vanilla on the spiritual level, yet they themselves believed they were okay. It's the most dangerous kind of church. It is the most dangerous kind of church because when people come in, you can't get clarity on anything. You can't see where the lines are drawn. Everything is blurry. If, if somebody is saying one thing, we all just sort of agree to make peace. If somebody is saying another thing, whether it contradicts that or not, we're all just agreeing to make peace. We're vanilla, we're neutral, we lack conviction, though in our self-sufficiency we think we are spiritually rich. That's this church. And I was thinking about this with regard to evangelicalism today and even our own church. We, we can't really slip into the pragmatism that says we need to brand ourselves and attract the world. What we need to know is what does Christ say about our church? What is he attracted to? We don't want to be at the place where we think we're on the cutting edge of all things moral, and at the same time, we're not only not on the cutting edge, but we're quite the opposite. Jesus says he is ready to vomit them out of his mouth. There's no line drawn. There's no way to find an answer, no way to get clarity. People go in there, it's the most subtle kind. False teachers love to be at the place where they mix a little bit of truth with a little bit of error and you can't see where the lines are. They love that because that's how they take an advantage. Satan loves it when you can have a little bit of truth mixed in with a teacher that you have come to like and then there's some error in there uh, that is under, it's tucked in, you can't see it, it's secretly introduced as a heresy. He loves that. He loves the lines blurred, he loves things not to be definitive. He loves the idea that nothing is certain. He loves the, the quote-unquote hermeneutics of humility, as post-modernity has called it, where we're all just saying, look, the Bible is just unclear. There's nothing really that you could be dogmatic about or definitive about or precise about or certain about, and only the humble person admits that up front. So why in the world would we want to get in there and really wrangle with texts and really find the author's meaning and really see the definitive implications and then preach them? How can you do that? That's just human authority. It takes real humility to come to the Bible and say it is too big. There is so much there. This is God's book. I'm humble enough to admit it up front. There can be, therefore, no objectivity, no certainty. This was Laodicea. They believed they were spiritually rich, yet they were full of really ancient postmodernity. They were full of the presumption of self-sufficiency and ultimately led them down the road of uncertainty and no clarity and no definitiveness, no precision, 
No lines clearly drawn. Vanilla. They were spiritually lukewarm. In every way, they were an offense to God because he said they had not gone to him for their garments. They had not gone to him for their eyesight. And they even boasted about it. We are in need of nothing. And so Jesus has to come to them and tell them, I'm not attracted to your church. I'm not interested in your ministry. I don't want what you have to offer. I don't want my name associated with who you are. This is shocking. This is an interesting last church to which Jesus Christ speaks. Paul, you know, knew of this church during his imprisonment, the first one in Rome, around the year A.D. 60 to 62. He had not visited the church personally, or so it says in Colossians 2, verse 1. But apparently, according to Colossians 4, he had written them a letter. And perhaps it could be identified with the New Testament epistle to the Ephesians, because he tells the Ephesians in that letter, I want you to read this to the people of Laodicea. The location of Laodicea, as I said earlier, was in the Lycus Valley, and it was, it was sort of the easterly or southernmost and easterly most of the seven churches along that route in Asia Minor. It was a busy place, as most of these other churches were along that route. There was a road from Pergamum and Sardis on the north, and it crossed to the east-west sort of route on its way south to the coast. Laodicea was right there in the center of it and very protected as to its location, but it was always problematic to to imagine that that they could protect themselves because their water supply was difficult. Commentators tell you that that the water supply had to be gained from other places. So they very much were vulnerable, even though their location was strategic. The city was, just to give a little history, was likely founded by Antiochus II, so long about 261 down to 246 BC, and he named it, or at least it seems that he named it after his wife, Laodis, and uh, divorced her a few years later. But the colonization of Laodicea was some Syrians, and there were some Macedonians who had colonized that area and, and a host of very wealthy Jews in a small community. It was known for some things. Uh, it was in its district, the hub for the judicial activity. Uh, commercial and financial trades were massive as they intersected with the city. Um, they would compete heavily against neighboring cities in the manufacturing industry. Wool was the manufacturing industry, and uh, Laodicea had a bit of an edge, at which gave them more wealth because they had a particular kind of wool that was, it was more wanted than the others. It was darker in color. It was softer, and so it kind of became a bit of a luxurious novelty to go to Laodicea and get their particular wool. There was also a huge school of medicine in the city, and uh, those doctors were all sort of tied back to sort of a medical guru named Hierophilus. Very, very important place for educational opportunities. All the industry that took place there, it made them an extremely wealthy community. And when all the cities of the region at one particular point 
in 60 AD were devastated by an earthquake. It was Laodicea it was the only one that paid for their own rebuild and actually sent money out to the other cities for a rebuild. Even the closest cities to them after the earthquake that needed help from the empire to bring resources in to rebuild, Laodicea actually was closest to them and supplied them with money and rebuilt themselves. So it was a wealthy place and a commercial center, and the religious uh, activity was tied in with the industry, particularly the wool industry. Nonetheless, the Phrygian gods were, were worshipped in Laodicea, or history tells us. It's very interesting then that he mentions here that they say they are rich. He's not really talking about the practical wealth that they had. They were indeed wealthy. History tells us that the Jewish community there uh, were known among the other Jewish sort of tribes and the places where Jews settled. The ones in Laodicea were known for their relaxation of the Jewish practices and their luxurious living. There's a lot of money there. And so it is interesting that Jesus uses that when he says, look, I know what you're saying. I know you're practically wealthy as a city, but spiritually you have said, I'm rich. Spiritually you've said, I have need of nothing. This is what makes God unattracted to the church. When the church believes that it does not need God for anything, yet it claims the name of Christ. What we note here at the outset, and we'll only get as far as the titles Jesus uses, but we note here in verse 14, we note three initial characteristics that attract Jesus Christ to the church, and they have to do with how he describes himself. And I love the way that the Lord begins this letter when he is about to tell them what he's going to do to them. He says in verse 14, three things about himself. He is the amen... He is the faithful and true witness, and he's the beginning of the creation of God. And as with all the letters, Jesus describes himself a certain way as a way of applying truth to what he tells each of the recipients of these letters in these churches, and we've noted that all the way through. It's no different than here with the letter to the church at Laodicea. Jesus Christ describes himself in a way that will cut at the very heart of their vanilla conduct and their vanilla status. He will come at them with who he is, and since they have said they have need of nothing, he will cut at the very heart of what has made them lukewarm. And the very names that Christ has, that he names here of himself at the beginning of this letter, should be already then the beginning of the turning over of the hardened ground of this poor and blind and naked group of people who do not see their condition. There are three then sort of, uh, there are three titles for Christ that tell you the kind of church that Christ is attracted to. And I just want to draw these out at the beginning of our study of this church, Laodicea. First of all, Christ is attracted to a church that is committed to the absolute certainty of Christ. A church that is committed to the absolute certainty of Christ. What does that mean? That means that truth is certain. Truth in Christ is certain. Christ himself is certain. He is full of certainty. He is certainty personified. He is truth personified. 
And that is what we find in this first title, the Amen. This is what Jesus Christ says of himself. This is his personal name. This is his personal name. It's interesting that it has the word the in front of it. It has the article. That means, therefore, that this is a a particular title. It is substantive. It is of a quality that is of the highest form. And so this is the first thing that Jesus says about himself. He describes himself in this title, that he is one in whom truth is certain and verifiable. Absolutely certain and verifiable. If you took a transliteration of this term, it would mean that this is immovable. This is certainty that is immovable. We've gotten to the place in our postmodern evangelicalism where nobody believes that anything can be certainly known. This is, of course, the problem with evangelicalism today. We've gotten to the place now, a generation and a half later, where questioning truth, questioning its veracity, questioning its certainty and its absolute nature, that has become the order of the day. And so now you have a generation in the church coming up that does not believe that anything can be known for certain. That somehow in the revelation of God in his written word, no matter how much you study it, there, there is no way to find meaning. There was no way to understand meaning. That, that actually the very words of the authors themselves, the biblical authors, inspired by the Spirit of God, are not clear. We're going to deal with this at Ecclesia next February. We're going to deal with this very subject on the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, and of course we're going to deal with the certainty of it. But here you have Jesus Christ out of the gate saying that he is fixed, he is true, he is unchangeable, he is certain. As his title, he is the amen. He is the firmed one, the one who is affirmed. It is certain. It cannot change. He is truth itself, and therefore he is credible. The concept of credibility here is in mind the certainty of Christ. That is to say, when he tells them that he knows their deeds, when he tells them he's going to vomit them out of his mouth, when he tells them that they need to repent, when he tells them that he will come in and sup with them if they will but open the door, when he tells them that he, the one who overcomes will be granted to sit down with him on his throne, they will be included in redemption. When he says that, it is unassailable, immovable, it cannot change. It is certain. This church had lost its sense of certainty. It had found certainty in itself. Look, if you turn inward on yourself, you will have no certainty. If you turn to your own thinking, you will only have subjectivity. If you imagine that you can live the Christian life based upon the subjective notions that you have, the feelings that you have, the emotions that you have, you will only be left with doubt and despair and misery. We are called to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. In John's gospel, chapter 16, Jesus said there that his words are spirit and are life. His very words are the truth, right? Sanctify them in thy truth, John 17.17. Thy word is truth. Truth itself, coming from God himself, is certain inherently. Because it comes from God. God is certain. 
God is precise. God is definitive. What God says is true. It's truthful. It's unchangeable. It's fixed. And so what Jesus is saying out of the gate is, look, I would vomit a church out of my mouth that became lukewarm because they lost their sense of certainty. Why? Because they turned inward. I have no need of you. I can assess this on my own. I have no need of you. I can feel my way. I have no need of you. I have the answers. I have no need of you. Consensus in society is the way to go. We have no need of you. Science is our answer. We have no need of you. Pop psychology is where we get our answers for how human beings can be emotionally whole. This was Laodicea. Laodicea had abandoned the amen of the church. They'd abandoned the fact that God's word is fixed and true and unchangeable. They'd abandoned it. Look at James chapter 1 for a moment. James chapter 1, verse 17. Actually, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no changing, no variation, no shadow of turning, in other words, no shadow of turning, no variation, no shifting. God does not change like that. He says what he says, and it is true because he said it, because God himself cannot be otherwise. God is blessed, and everything he says is blessed. He is the God of truth. Look back at Isaiah chapter 65 for a moment. The prophet Isaiah chapter 65. God is called the God of truth. He is the God of truth. Verse 16 of Isaiah 65. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. God is certain. God is precise. What God says is truth because he said it, because God himself can be nothing other than truth. When Jesus was on the earth, he made that very, very clear. You remember when the disciples were troubled in John 14, Jesus was going to leave them and they were troubled. And he said, don't let your heart be troubled. Look, believe in God, believe also in me. Why? Because I'm sent from God. If you already believe in God, if you look to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, If he represents truth, if he is truth to you, then you believe also in me. Why? Because in my father's house are many dwelling places. And then he says this, if it weren't so, I would have said so to you. I would have told you. I was at the graveside yesterday and I opened up to that passage because it's so, so important when Christians face the reality of death and the sorrow of it. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because Jesus said, if... If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Why is, that, is, why is that certain? Because Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. Everything Jesus says will happen, happens. When he says here to the lukewarm church, I will spit you out of my mouth, he's, he's certainly going to do that if they do not repent. There's no shifting with him. 
We have in evangelicalism come to the place where the whole undergirding of the certainty of divine truth is being undercut by this same idea, this same mentality. I have need of nothing. I can think this through on my own, turn inward. I can find answers out of the, the sheer uh, internal workings of, and machinations of my mind. Well, how can that be if your mind is fallen? You may be a rational being. You still have the ability to think thoughts. You can connect logical dots because in the image of God, we are logical beings. You still have the mental capacity to think your way through something logical. What we don't have as fallen human beings is the ability to do anything, any, draw any moral conclusions without suppressing truth in unrighteousness. You don't have that capacity. You do not have, by nature, the moral capacity to connect spiritual dots so that you might turn to God. Why? Because internally, you have a moral bent against truth. This is a church that had said, no, we do not have a moral bent against truth. We, in and of ourselves, can assess this. Now, whether they were philosophical rationalists here in Laodicea, or whether there was a group that were pop psychologists, or whether through medicine they were the scientific version of that, whether they were the religious version under the Phrygian gods, any way you look at it, they had said, we on our own are rich in our way of thinking it through. We have need of nothing. Listen, beloved, when the church comes to sit under the preaching of God's word, if the church comes and says, I get to sit in judgment on God's word because I'm not sure it's certain until it hits me and the way I feel about it when it hits me makes it certain, if that's the church, that is in trouble. Truth is outside of us. Truth is objective. Truth is certain because it is outside of us and it is given to us by God. And we are called immediately the moment we hear it to obey it. There's a recent ideology saying that we ought to invite skeptics into the church because skeptics, skeptics are the ones that really know how to ask the hard questions. All Christians do is they just mute all the hard questions because we just want to be a nice little group and all of us agree. And so there's this whole ideology promoted by these uh, Christian leaders that we ought to invite skeptics in because skeptics know how to teach us how to really debate the truth. No, skeptics are unbelievers, and the moment skeptics are told the truth, they are under the weight of that truth to obey it and believe it. We have no obligation to answer a skeptic's questions outside of Scripture. We have no obligation to assume that a skeptic is a genuine seeker. You know how you can tell a genuine seeker? When they hear the truth, they believe it. Because they're drawn by God. Everyone else is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and anyone who says the truth isn't certain is an unbeliever. They're an unbeliever. You say, well, aren't there people who are confused by those leaders? Listen, they, they may be confused, but your conscience would be heavily burdened by the Spirit of God because that ideology wages war with the Spirit of God within a true believer as to the certainty of Scripture. When you hear the truth preached, you are under its objective nature, and you are bound to it to obey it right then and there, to believe it and obey it. You say, what if I don't understand it? As a Christian, you believe everything you do understand, and you search everything you don't until you do. That's how we come to the truth. 
And Jesus opens up this letter and says, look, this is a lukewarm church. Why? Because they have said they have need of nothing, and I am the certain one. I'm the only certain one. You don't come to certainty on your own. Christ's perfections are that he is true, and he is genuine, and he is certain. And our devotion to the objectivity of his revelation, the fact that it is authoritative and it is certain and it is clear and it is revealed, and we come with a submissive heart, then and only then can the heart open up. And as verse 10 says of this chapter, he will come in then and he will sup with his people. Sometimes we use that verse for evangelism and and I suppose in an individual sense rather than a corporate sense, it could be used that way. The Lord himself is willing to come into the life and change it. But that's not essentially the context of that verse. What he's talking about is the the church, corporate, essentially. And yes, individual believers need to open up their life to Jesus Christ, but he's not sitting around uh, as if he can't open the heart. He's the only one that can open the heart. So in some ways, that verse has kind of become confusing to use it in evangelism. In the context here in Revelation 3, it's basically saying to Laodicea, you're a church that has become self-sufficient. You believe you're certain in and of yourself, and that has blinded you, and Jesus Christ is knocking on the door saying, repent. And I will be willing to come, and instead of vomit you out of my mouth, I'll receive you to myself. The Lord Jesus Christ is attracted to a church that's committed to the absolute certainty of Christ, his words, his name, his person, his character, the fact that he's God, the fact that he is our Savior, the fact that what he says is spirit and life, the fact that we live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth, the fact that we submit to it when we hear it because it is objective and outside of us and we're commanded to by the very nature of revelation itself. How do we know this? Because he is the amen. He is the one who is fixed and true and unchangeable. He is truth. Secondly, It says here in this text that he is also the faithful and true witness. So he is attracted to a church first that's committed to the absolute certainty of Christ, and he's committed to a church, he's attracted to a church that is committed to the veracity of Christ, the veracity of Christ. Say, what is the difference? In this sense here, he is the faithful and true witness. That is to say that he is the one who actually reveals faithfully everything that the Father wanted revealed. He's the actual faithful and true testifier, the one who gave all that was necessary, never left anything out, did not deceive. It's not only certain, it is reliable. It is reliable. He's the faithful and true witness. Witnesses, of course, as you know, the the word for martyr, and it basically meant testifier. Obviously, it was associated with death because that was the ultimate price you might pay to testify to Christ. And so it became associated with that. It was often used in a more legal sense, but sometimes in an historical sense and sometimes just to speak of how one acted in an ethical manner. The use here is, is really just the, the sense of 
Jesus Christ's own giving of revelation and being a testifier of God and redemption. This is how the Apostle John always used this type of terminology. You see that all throughout John's gospel. This is basically talking about the fact that if you hear something from Christ, if something is revealed by Christ, it is reliable. You can take it all the way to eternity. He was the one who revealed it all. Now look back at John's gospel again. To chapter 14, John chapter 14, and you see the unbroken chain of revelation here. While Jesus was with the disciples, he he held them, he kept them in, he revealed everything they needed to know, he told them everything that they needed to know, he told them things ahead of time so that when it happened they would know. There was great comfort and there was protection and there was guarded uh, guarded strength. He took care of their faith. He watched over their life. He guarded their mind. He gave them truth. But then he says in verse 16 of chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another one that is called alongside to help, often translated comforter or intercessor, one who is like Jesus for you. Or we might say the spirit of truth who is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is Christ, the revealer to you. He is his spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of Christ. And notice verse 17, he is called the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Notice verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Christ is reliable. When he gives truth, he gives all that we need for life and godliness. He never leaves anything out, and he's not stingy. He doesn't deceive. He won't say one thing and then change it into another, and everything we need is given. He doesn't keep anything back. All of it that we need is disclosed. In that sense, he is the faithful and true witness Notice verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And in that day, you'll know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I'll love him and will disclose myself to him. He will disclose himself to us. It is reliable when he says that. Everything we've needed has been given. Everything. Nothing was left out. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. When this helper comes, this one called alongside to help, whom I will send to you. It's interesting. He will ask the Father and the Father sends him and Christ is also the one who sends the Spirit. Whom I will send you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So now you know that those who come to Christ, they gain the Spirit, and the Spirit testifies about Christ. Nothing about Christ is left out. He's reliable in exactly what he said would happen. I will send him, he will disclose what, who I am to you, and he will tell you everything you need to know. He will testify about me. There's nothing that you will not be able to rely on, nothing you can't count on, nothing that will be deceived, nothing will be shortchanged. Utterly 
reliable. Notice verse uh, chapter 16, verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. I like that. He even withholds what is going to be said because in the reliability and faithfulness of Christ as a witness for his people, he protected them until the Spirit came so that he would guide them into all the truth. He protected them, doled it out as was necessary. You know, in many ways, that's how the Lord operates in our Christian life. You open your Bible, you're not going to have it all thrown at you all at once in full comprehension, and then God's going to say, now you have to obey it all at once today. I realize it's all given to us. I realize we're all obligated to it, but he patiently builds understanding and renews the mind over time. I'm so grateful for that process. And it was the case when Jesus was with the disciples, he did the same thing. He doled it out as necessary. And then notice what he says, verse 13, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The apostles were going to be the ones inspired by the Spirit of God to write down everything they'd learned from Jesus and even the things they forgot. Notice, he will give it to them. He will remind them. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, that is to say from Christ who gets it from the Father, he will speak and he'll disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, he will take of mine, and disclose it to you. And know this, all things that the Father has are mine. That is to say, the Father gave everything about this plan of redemption to his Son, and therefore, Jesus said, he, the Spirit, takes of what is given to the Son and will disclose it to you. It's an unbreakable chain, it's totally reliable, nothing's left out, nothing is hidden, nothing's deceived, nothing held back. I love that. He'll give it all as it was intended to be given. In that day, verse 26 of chapter 16, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your, ha- your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I mean, we have direct access to the source. It comes down to us by the word of Christ and through the power of his spirit illumining our minds. Nothing is left out, totally reliable. He is the faithful and true witness. Look at chapter 17. When Jesus was praying to his father, he says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. And now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Listen, this is, of course, where the charismatic movement goofs up on the idea that, that ongoing revelation happens on a personal level. That can't be because you'd be skipping the apostles. You, you can't have that. They are in the unbreakable chain. You have the Father disclosing everything to His Son, His Son disclosing it to His Spirit, His Spirit disclosing it to His, to his apostles who laid the foundation for the doctrinal authority of the church, Ephesians 2.20. And that was passed down to us in the written revelation of Christ. Nothing is left out. Nothing needed to be added. Nothing taken away. Nothing held back. True and faithful 
witness. Reliable. You know how a church becomes lukewarm? When it thinks that Christ's word isn't reliable. When it starts questioning the veracity of the word. When it starts imagining that that we can turn inward and have notions bubble up into our mind and that's the revelation of God. When we can have dreams and imagine that that's the revelation of God. When we can have some indigestion and think that God spoke something to us. What we're doing at that point is doubting the veracity of the revelation and the unbreakable chain given to us from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the apostles and then handed to God's people right here in His written revelation. This is where we focus. Laodicea got to the place where they said, we have need of nothing. And that meant that they doubted. They were not committed to the certainty of Christ and they were not committed to the reliability of the witness of Christ. Therefore, they had to turn to themselves for certainty. They had to turn to themselves for some notion of a reliable testifying of truth. He says here that he's a faithful witness. He is trustworthy as a witness. He didn't leave anything out. You know the sense of security that gives to the believer to know that when you have an issue, you can open up your scriptures and you can read there and pray for the Holy Spirit to illumine your mind to the implications of that text as you begin to understand what it's saying and what the author says in his context. And do you know that God gave us his word As revelation, that is to say he wanted it to be clear, not obscure. It was to reveal something. That's the nature of revelation itself, to make things clear. And then he gave the church gifted men who will be raised up to dig into God's word, to draw out its implications and preach it to you so that you're taught the full depth of all that is there. That's the Lord Jesus Christ being a faithful and true witness. He's reliable And did you know that it has stood the test of time? You can go back in church history and you can look at all the agnostic and atheist organizations and and humanistic organizations that have tried and tried and tried to find ways to discredit the scriptures and it stands the test of time over and over and over again. Why? Because it was a reliable Witness. It was faithfully given by the Son of God Himself, who Himself by nature is certain. He's the Amen. We need turn nowhere else for the truth than the faithful and true witness Himself. How do we know that even this statement is true? Jesus Christ walked the earth, went to the cross died and rose on the third day. There is your objective, powerful witness that he is who he says he was. He is the son of God. He is truth. He is the faithful witness. No one is reliable. Christ is reliable. Let all men be found liars and let God be found true. When men like the church of Laodicea, begin to turn to themselves for reliability, when they begin to turn to themselves for any certainty and objectivity, they run aground. They go blind, and they're so blind that they become 
vanilla in God's presence, though they think they are rich. Indeed, they're not. They're lukewarm. Jesus Christ is attracted to a church that absolutely upholds that Scripture is certain, Christ is certain. This is a revelation of Christ. His truth is certain. It does not change. It's immovable. We rely on it. We stand on it. It is objective. It is outside of us. And he is attracted to a church that is committed to the veracity of it, that it is a faithful witness, nothing left out, nothing held back. It is sufficient. It is all we need pertaining to life and godliness. The answers are there for your heart and your life so that you might be perfectly equipped, lacking in nothing, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Christ loves a church like that. Lastly, the Lord is attracted to a church that is committed not only to the certainty of Christ, not only to the veracity of Christ, but the preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ. Notice this last title, the beginning of the creation of God He is the preeminent one. That's what that translation actually means from the Greek language. He is the originator. He's the initiator. He's the trailblazer. In chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 13, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Some cults try to use this verse to say he was created, but that isn't the sense of the term. The sense of the term is that he is the creator himself. He is the creator himself. He's the one who originated everything. He initiated everything. He created everything. John 1, there isn't anything that you see that was made that wasn't made by him. Apart from him, nothing was made. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17, he is the preeminent one. He's the creator. All things are not only created by him, but sustained by him. Every molecule, every atom is upheld by him. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the Lord of his people. He's the beginning, the originator. He's the arche. This is supported by his title at the end, as I said. He is the Alpha and Omega. He's the first, and he is the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus Christ is to be preeminent in the church. You know why Christ isn't attracted to Laodicea? Because Christ stopped being preeminent. They were preeminent. Personally, they were preeminent. Human beings were preeminent. More importantly, humanistic ideology was preeminent. Self-exaltation was preeminent. Uh, moral high ground that you assessed yourself and evaluated yourself. That was preeminent, verse 17. Self-atonement is implied here when he says you need to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness won't be revealed. There may even be in that the sense that they thought salvation was in and of themselves. They worked their way into a moral standing that was okay. They were fine. They weren't wretched. They weren't miserable. They weren't morally poor, blind, and naked. They believed they could see. This is tantamount to the sin of the Pharisees in John 9 when Jesus says to them, because you say we already see all spiritually that we need to see, then you are indeed blind. You remain in your sins. That's what happened to Laodicea. 
Christ isn't attracted to a church where he's not preeminent because human beings have become preeminent. They have assessed their own moral condition. And they have not let Jesus in. They have shoved him out. Well, that describes evangelicalism today. It's all about the preeminence of the rich. It's all about the preeminence of branding yourself. It's all about the preeminence of humanity and human ideology. It's all about the preeminence of being liked by the culture and snuggling up to science. It's all about the preeminence of our own assessment of human emotions and the inner life and healing one another that way. It's all about the preeminence of our technology. It's all about the preeminence of our intelligence, our education system. It is all about the preeminence of the global village to raise children and make children superior morally. Children are born in sin, just like all of us were born in sin. And the enemy is within. There is nothing in society by consensus or from the outside that is going to change that. Only redemption in Christ is going to change that. No wonder the church pushes Christ out. When we believe the family can be raised on our own, when we believe we can solve each other's emotional problems on our own, we can solve society's problems and crime and all those things on our own. When we imagine that we have assessed the universe and we understand it, and some will even say, I'm not sure I like the idea that Genesis says that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh day. They can't really be 24-hour days. I mean, that just seems outrageous. Plus, science tells us that the universe is in a mature state already. And so stars that have been light years away, they had to have traveled billions of light years for us to even see the light of them. And so indeed, that tells us the universe is far older. So Genesis, in that account, must be talking about something else. The, the, the Hebrew there indicating a narrative just can't be Hebrew narrative. It can't be mere chronological 24-hour days. See, we have pushed Christ right on out. We've pushed God right on out. He's not preeminent. Why? We have need of nothing. We are in and of ourselves sufficient. Christ is no longer our certainty in evangelicalism. Christ is no longer our reliable, faithful witness. Christ is no longer, therefore, our veracity. And Christ is no longer preeminent. Beloved, listen. Jesus Christ is attracted to a church where certainty of revelation is upheld and proclaimed and the will called to obey it the moment we hear it. Christ is attracted to a church where he is upheld as the only reliable source of truth because he is truth. So what he says and what he got from the Father and passed to the Spirit and gave to the apostles and laid out for us in written revelation, that is where we go. He loves a church that upholds the truth that way and preaches it with certainty, definitiveness, precision. No murkiness, no blurred lines. And it is reliable and he is a faithful witness. He is always counted upon. He left out nothing. He always gave gave us what we needed. It is utterly sufficient. Anytime a church questions that, it begins to lose its moorings. He's attracted to a church that upholds the reliability of his witness. And he's attracted to a church 
where he is preeminent. He is the one who is the creator God. He is the one who is our strength, our power. It is he who possesses life and gives life to whom he wishes. It is he who will be the judge, John 5. All judgment has been given to him and he has authority over every soul, John 17, verse 2. He's the one. And he says to Laodicea, I am certainty, I am the faithful and true reliable witness, and I am the initiator, the originator of all things, and I say this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. You're the most dangerous version there is. Anybody would be comfortable in your church. Anyone. Why? Because a human being that's already self-sufficient will love to be around everyone else that's self-sufficient. And when you come into a church like this, you can find a, a way to have your own idolatries puffed up anywhere. You're an intellect. You go over to the intellectual crowd. You get puffed up. You, you love to, to get in touch with your inner self, your inner child. You go over there and you get puffed up with that group. You, you're all about your money and your achievements at your job. You got plenty of wealthy people there in Laodicea. You go get puffed up with that group. Or maybe you're the engineer type and you just like science and you like things really reliable and logical and factual and you can get puffed up with that group. Or maybe you're the kind that likes the mystical religious elements and so you go to God and, and in, in some sort of old ancient practice, you, you just sort of pray and read the scriptures and then you wait for God to speak something into your mind and you believe it's God. You've got a group in the church that'll puff you up with that and call you more spiritual because you've tapped into the deities. This is the most dangerous kind of congregation. No certain lines drawn. No preeminence of Christ at the center, no centrality of his word in its objectivity, in its clarity, in its reliability as a witness, in its sufficiency, in its authority. That is a dangerous church because it may name the name of Christ. It may call itself a Bible church, but you get in there and it's vanilla and nobody can really tell. And everybody's acting humble, but nobody's really humble because Christ has been moved out. And that's why he comes and says, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Some of your margins actually give the, the more graphic translation. I want to vomit, Christ said. Why? Because here's what you say. I'm rich and I have need of nothing. And I'm advising you, he says, to buy from me these things, to get from me these garments, to take from me this eye salve so that you may see. And as we'll see next time, the grace that is here is so shocking. Verse 19, those whom I love... Listen, there were some in Laodicea who were under the chastening of the Lord because they were going along with it. 
And he is going to chasten them like he said in Hebrews 12. And he's going to bring his discipline because he needs to scourge them because they're legitimate sons. Everyone else in Laodicea was not a legitimate son. Therefore, be zealous and repent, he says. And if you do that, if you open the door to my preeminence, to my objectivity and clarity and certainty and sufficiency and reliability and faithfulness, if you open the door to that, I will come in and we will have ministry and it will be renewed. Love it. This is why at our church, we talk about this all the time. This is why we want to do conferences on it. This is why we want to preach from the pulpit the clarity of God's word. Don't come in here and imagine that we're going to open some other book or we're going to open this book, read a verse, and launch off it into some human drama that's supposed to have some alleged authority for you to follow. Human experience has no inherent authority, let alone certainty. When you come to the ministry, we want to teach you how to disciple one another by opening the scriptures and knowing that this is the revelation of Christ, the amen himself. This is the faithful and true witness. This is the creator God himself who told us these things, and we, because it's objective, are under the command and demand to obey it. He loves a church like that. He loves a church that doesn't question the veracity of who he is. It doesn't question the certainty of what he says. It doesn't question the the authority of his preeminence. He loves a church like that. And he says the most dangerous church of all is one that goes the opposite way and finds its veracity and its certainty and its preeminence in itself. Because it will become Satan's most useful tool in its lack of drawing clear lines, its lack of definitiveness. Beware the church that says, you know, we can't really know. Beware the church that says, how can you be so dogmatic? Beware the church that says, you know, that's merely your interpretation. We all have our own interpretation. Beware the church that says that. We all want to interpret the scriptures properly. We all work hard to know what the author said and what he intended to say in context, but it is revelation. It is to be clear. God made it to be clear. Obscure passages notwithstanding, the truths of scripture by which we live and die are clear. They're clear. Satan is the one who keeps introducing doubt and skepticism. Beware the church that fills itself with skeptics as if they are genuine people asking the really hard questions that the rest of us want to avoid. That teaching, by the way, is sweeping evangelicalism, and it's just nonsense. It is dangerous. It is demonic to introduce such an idea into the church because all you're saying is that the skeptics are the real seekers that really know how to get down to the brass tacks. No, they don't. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They violate the very truth they're commanded to obey the moment they hear it. Sure, you can talk about the foolishness of their ideology and you can help them take their worldview to its logical conclusion and show that it is against the truth. Sure, you should do that, but only by Scripture, and you should do that showing them the folly of their worldview. You shouldn't do that imagining that they're the ones asking the only honest questions in the room. Skeptics aren't honest. Skeptics are truth suppressors that haven't admitted it yet. That's the quickest way to becoming a lukewarm congregation. Beloved, we want to uphold the certainty of Christ and the reliability of Christ and the preeminence of Christ in his church through his word. Amen? That's how we avoid becoming lukewarm 
with blurry lines on every issue. So much more to come in this letter. We'll save that for next time. Bow with me.